Take it from the top. Take one. This is Within. Shifting the conversation on who is in prison. Recording within three prisons across the Colorado Department of Corrections. Denver Women's Correctional Facility. Sterling Correctional Facility. Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center. Denise Price. Andrew Drake. Terry Mosley Jr. Sean J. Marshall. Ashley Hamilton. Sarah Berry. Brett Phillips. Angel Lopez. Travis Barnes. Matthew Labonte. Ms. Grant. Here at Within, as we work to shift the conversation on who is in prison, we've asked our guests and our hosts to freely share their perspective. The opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly those of the person who gave them. Because we recorded this season virtually across so many sites, there's going to be moments where our sound quality is not as perfect as we wanted it to be. We'll ask for your understanding and let you know that we're always working to provide a wonderful listening experience. Many conversations begin with a question. So, Andrew, are you the same person you were at 11 or 15? I still look the same. Devilishly handsome at the prime age of 27. <laughs> but no. Uh, fundamentally, I, I am different. So, no, I'm not the same. The uh, the way that I look at and engage with the world is totally different today than it was when I was 15. And for that matter, I was different at the age of 15 than I was when I was 11. So, so no, Denise, I'm not. Why do you ask? I ask because we in the within team we've been having this conversation about the pipeline to prison for juveniles through since the beginning of our podcast and our team because many of our team and in our DUPI community were the juvenile delinquents that now may never have a chance at freedom as adults and it's sad to say that demographics ethnicity finding your identity these simple factors that weigh heavily on the future of our youth are not a major concern for everyone no they're not. And to quote Brian Stevenson from our Stonecatcher episode, it is a hopeless judgment to say that we will condemn someone to die in prison. A whole generation of children have been condemned. America is going to be judged not by how well we treat talented kids, gifted kids and privileged kids. We will be judged by how well we treated poor kids, abused kids, neglected kids, and kids condemned to jails. What will the legacy of America be on the matter of our children? What will that be? Um, and it's it's sad, powerful and sad. It is when it, when you say it like that and you re uh, you retell Brian Stevenson's point. And I know that you have strong feelings on this whole subject because of your lived experience. I think that it's awesome that you got to interview juvenile defense lawyer, Ashley Ratcliffe. I did. She was great. I think the fact that she's so well accomplished that she's doing the work to intervene in all these people's lives. And I'm not just talking about youth and juvenile, just so many people's lives because of the students she teaches, because she's also a professor. She's been breaking down the assumptions for, I don't know, a couple decades now by creating the evidence-based practices that she uses that are a holistic approach to juveniles and also the crime that, that those kids create. 
And I know that we've kind of talked about this a little bit, villains, heroes. I really think that Ashley is just another hero in many people's lives, in many people's stories. She's an absolute titan, uh, Denise. And, and hold on, hold on for a moment. And let me read some of her bona fides, right? She's a juvenile defense lawyer with most of her caseload coming from court appointment with the Office of Alternate Defense Counsel. She mostly represents juveniles at risk of adult prosecution. She spent the last decade working exclusively with juveniles serving life or de facto life sentences. She's an expert and testifies across the country about best practices for attorneys working with youth in juvenile and adult systems. She's an adjunct professor at Denver University's Graduate School of Social Work, and she's also a published author. And as I said, she's an absolute titan, right? She fights hard for our youth who are at risk of losing their lives to the system. And um, I spoke with her at length about the juvenile system and the children who seem to get stuck in this pipeline from patty cake to prison. And she had she had a lot to give us. You know, she gave us a lot. And I'm also super excited because right after we speak to Ashley, we speak to Tenero Banks, a man that's been in prison the last 18 years uh, since he was 15. And he shed some light on the power of uh, negative influence and how that influence helped usher him into prison. And so, Andrew, let's listen as you talk with juvenile defense attorney Ashley Ratcliffe. Miss Ratliff, you have a certifiable care for the youth, and I'm wondering how long your work has been your passion. It's been my passion for as long as I can remember, and I feel really grateful. I went to graduate school, and I didn't want to be a lawyer, and I didn't want to be a litigator, and here I am, a public defender litigator, okay? And so when I was in college in Boulder, I thought I was going to be a teacher, because I knew I really wanted to work with kids and help kids or youth. And every internship kept leading me to the court system or the juvenile detention facility where I tutored youth at the Boulder County Juvenile Detention Center. And I ended up working for a magistrate who was running a school out of his jury room at the time. And many of the youth that I worked with, I could just tell they needed help. And as a teacher, I didn't feel like I could do that. And so the magistrate who was running the, the school at the time was called Boulder Prep. It's now Justice High, I believe, um, said, you got to go to law school. And every single internship I did was highlighting and emphasizing my passion for working with people at risk of the oppressive criminal court system. I worked with the California Innocence Project and was beyond stunned to learn that exonerees have zero resources when they're released. And so I wrote my thesis that also became a publication on the plight of of those wrongfully convicted or wrongfully incarcerated. And then I started my career at the Arapahoe County Public Defender's Office, continued working with juveniles and youth and teaching others about brain development and the importance of holistic juvenile and criminal defense. My newest passion is to really try and work more with 18 to 25 year olds and help them as best I can. Um, I'm always trying to find different legal issues to help a client um, either litigate or mitigate who is, why is, and how can we help this person not find themselves back to where I found them as their lawyer. 
So you spoke about an oppressive system right now. And that statement speaks volumes. And I'm wondering, did you work with adults as well as juveniles? Uh, yes. So when I first started my career at the public defender's office, it was mostly adults um, that I worked with. But I wanted to work with juveniles. And so I had a split up caseload with some adults, some juveniles. And most of my clients were young, like 19 to 25. And so that that's why I say emerging adults, I feel like most of my clients have been very young. But all of that I've gained and learned in my teaching at conferences here and across the country, I try to broaden that because I firmly believe that every human being is way more than their worst act or their worst moment. And that's not my quote, that's Brian Stevenson's quote, but I firmly believe that about all human beings. And I think, God forbid, if I was ever judged for things that I did when I was a teenager, young adult, for the rest of my life. Okay. So why focus on juveniles and not adults? I mean, I guess when I was younger, ideologically, and I think I did a paper in college on this, about there's, there is a lot more room for intervention with youth than possibly with adults who are more ingrained in their personalities, their development. Whereas youth, we know this from science. We are not fully formed until we're 25 years old. And that's with a quote unquote normal adult, you know? And then you throw in, you know, other things like trauma or disabilities or mental illness that could change all of that interaction. And so I think it just stems from more like ideally, I felt like I could do more to help children than adults. Um, and so I've ingrained in my practice that way, but I firmly believe that adults need the same advocacy as well. All right. So in the overall system, you've been entrenched. You've worked with all different kinds of people, uh, juveniles and adults. You've become educated and educated yourself in this. But I'm curious to your opinion as to the overall effects that the juvenile system leaves on the children that pass through it. Well, my graduate students don't like me saying this, but it depends. I think that the, I mean, any system is traumatic. And so that's part of why I created a pilot project of having social workers work on teams with lawyers. Because my social work degree within me and my lawyer degree within me, I can't be both at the same time. I often say I need a stunt double sometimes. And these, and this, this, really sparked when I was working with two different juveniles. One was an adult who was serving a life sentence and we were looking at resentencing and the other one was a juvenile who did not remember the event and couldn't understand why he was being charged with first degree murder. And just that internal within me was like, I need that expert, a social worker, someone who can understand the systems that surrounded these young people and help me build up a holistic defense. And so we started an internship, a pilot project to have social workers on juvenile defense teams. Then it broadened to adult defense teams. And now there's social workers in the public defender system across the state of Colorado. There's over 50 contractors with the Office of Alternate Defense Council. And I'm so proud that that work has flourished. And one of the things that is really important to me is, is check-ins around each court hearing. Because there are some court hearings that bring out a lot of trauma for youth that most people don't recognize. And so I often make sure that my social workers that I'm working with, we do some before hearing and after hearing work 
which then ends up being skill building that that youth can hold on to and feel accomplished. So what do these check-ins consist of? Well, I'm going to say it again, depends. It depends on the hearing. Like, for example, if it's a really big hearing where there's a lot of evidence coming out, right, about the crime, that's traumatic, right? And maybe the young person lived it or maybe the young person wasn't in the middle of it, but they helped plan the event, let's say, because juvenile practice, kids are doing things in groups. That's, that's what they do. We do things with our peers when we're that age. We're figuring out who we are. The check-ins, depend. you know, it's like, this is what you're going to hear in court. These are the things that we plan to bring out. I've also been part of a lot of reverse transfer hearings, as well as juvenile life without parole resentencing hearings. And those are super intense, where we're bringing out who was this young person back before the crime? What have they done? Who have they become? In spite of being told that they would die in prison. And what does the safety plan or community reentry plan look like? And so before and after those hearings, it's really important, and I try to do as much as I can together with my, the social workers to debrief what they're hearing, what they're about to hear, because the court system is oppressive and it is traumatizing for everyone involved on both sides, whether it's the victim's family members or the family members of the accused. It's a very traumatic experience. And so I try to do my best with some of those things to help my clients through that process along the way. You know what? Uh, (laughs) That's great to hear because when I was a child and I traveled through the system, it was my experience that the system didn't necessarily address what I truly needed at the time. It didn't it didn't address what I needed to recognize the harm that I caused or or what I needed to become a better person. So it's it's good to hear that you have developed a process to address what these kids really need. But I'm curious to know if you've come across any children or or any situations that haven't been fulfilled by the system that that you've created or the system that's been in place absolutely you know we can't win them all and i feel very grateful that two of my former clients are now home and they are not serving life without parole that was imposed upon them in the late 90s i'm internally grateful for that however i've also had clients resentenced to life and it's broken my heart and it breaks my heart because i know that they were they were basically thrown away from jump And yet I found the humanity. I will never forget the letter from one of my clients that I was the first white person that he ever trusted. This is something nationally we're doing. Juvenile defenders nationally are really pushing for racial justice, being very intentional about representing youth of color and people of color to know better, to do better, and to be better. And I have to say that my clients have taught me some of the most invaluable lessons that I've learned through this that I didn't get through my academic teaching. And I'm grateful to them for teaching me how to be a better lawyer. Thank you for that. And and in my book, uh, <laughs> you're you're growing as a hero, right? Seriously. But with all of that being said, what do you believe that the juvenile system is lacking? Right. Like if there's any one area or two, um, what do you believe it's lacking if it's lacking anything? Well, I think it's before the system. You know, what's really troubling and going on is is the over-policing in schools. And it starts there, where we have kids who that are exerting behavior, because some kids, they don't have the language, they show through behavior. 
And so unfortunately, the, the, the school to prison pipeline is a terrible reality that we still have to fight against. And so I think it comes from before the system, diverting, because if your system involved, it can end up with the unfortunate revolving door into adulthood. The first call doesn't always have to be to the Department of Human Services or to the police department. What are some restorative justice ways that we can implement things in the school so that we're not in the system? You know, I have a client, um, a former client now, and thankfully we, we were able to get his case from adult court back to juvenile court. And every system you can imagine failed this kid, especially the school system. It was horrifying to see what happened to this kid. And I know that it happens all the time. And so I'm trying to work on, you know, how can we be better in the schools? And there's even more efforts right now. I think there's legislation trying to go through with more diversion opportunities, right? To divert kids, give them that chance ahead of time. But also we need to support their families. I had several kids go through diversion as a public defender and they failed because their parents couldn't drive them to the meetings. And I'm thinking that's not the child's fault. You know, and the parents are suffering too. And so I think there's a lot of real good work to be done on these before system. Can you define what what the before uh, system is? Is it is it the school or or is it the family or is it a combination of, of a bunch of different things? Well, and I think it depends on the crime, right? We, we know there's a lot of crimes that come through the system from school. We know that that happens, right? Or a fight that's even off of school. Next thing you know, there's school implications as a result of it. There's stuff that happens within families. You know, interdisciplinary work is, is so powerful. I've seen it in criminal defense and I've seen it work well. When I've been able to sit down with prosecutors and really talk with them openly about who my client is and why my client is, where they've come from and where they and who they are, I've had really powerful discussions with the other side. When those discussions don't take place, the system's failing everybody. And I've had clients who have been too young to understand the process. I had a 10-year-old who lost a tooth at the court table. And I was, you know, beside myself that what are we doing to young children, putting them in a system when we could probably divert in other more meaningful ways through an interdisciplinary, thoughtful, holistic approach? Certainly. And I'm curious, in your opinion, where can we improve as a society? If you were to talk to an everyday layman or, or a teacher or a mentor, a caseworker or, or anyone that interacts with the youth, and if you were to give them advice, what would you tell them? Uh, what can we do better? How can we intervene before these kids get into the system? Systemically, I think that one is check your assumptions and really think about what's going on. And the example that I'm, I would like to give is... I share, my, my children know a lot about the work that I do. And I got to, I had the honor and privilege of presiding as the judge over the big bad wolf trial. And here I say big bad wolf when it's Alexander Wolf, who actually has a story. He was trying to make a cake for his grandmother. And it was so remarkable to talk with second graders about context, about who is Alex Wolf and how is it that he ended up, you know, in the situation where a couple of pigs died and then he ate them after. And that's his food source. So we talked about cultural humility with a second grade class. And so it goes to assumptions. And my seven-year-old, when I shared with him that a six-year-old was arrested in North Carolina for taking a tulip off of someone's lawn, 
He said to me, but what if it was his mom's birthday and her favorite flower was tulips? And so it's my hope that not that I'm instilling just in my kids about context and understanding and not making assumptions about people, that us as a community can take a step back and we're not making assumptions that just because a kid is, is acting out, they have a bad day and they do something that, that could hurt someone. That's not who they are. What can we do to help that person who's hurting? Many people more than me have said this, hurt people hurt people. Well, why is this child or young person hurting? And how can we support them with developmentally appropriate punishment if that's what's needed? And then a restorative justice approach all the way through is so needed. We need that in the criminal court system so badly. It is so divided. And I feel like our youth, because they're so malleable and they are sponges and their brains are still forming, that they may take on to that approach. And I've seen and worked with some of my young clients through a restorative justice approach which then helps them provide a statement to the court at sentencing that they've recognized something about the harm they've caused. And it takes a lot for people to get there in general, but it takes young people. So assumptions and restorative justice is what I would say we really need. Every one of us has assumptions, you know, and if we can take a step back and think about who is this human being and are they hurting and why and what can we do that's not slamming the door in their face. So in your ideal world, what would a full healthy juvenile system look like, right? How would that appear? Gosh, this is a great question and a big one. Um, Well, a healthy system doesn't start automatically with arrest and charges because that's not trauma-informed. So I think our systems, our court systems, everybody needs to be trained to be trauma-informed. They're starting to do that in different places, but if you arrest a child who has extensive trauma with being held down or locked down in any fashion by whatever their family system or something, they're re-traumatized just by the arrest. They haven't even gotten to the charges portion yet. And so I think that the juvenile system is supposed to rehabilitate in the least restrictive setting. We need to do better to get there. We're not there yet because we start with arrest in a lot of places and detention and incarceration. And then you got to fight to get your way out, which I know happens in the adult system as well. And then there's the whole bail issue, which families can afford for their loved one to be out of custody. Okay, I do agree with you, but I am curious about the kids that commit a crime that society views as beyond heinous, you know, children that commit mass shootings and the like. What about those situations? How do we address those issues and those kids? Well, and I think I know what you're saying. I mean, there are there are there are several youth who've been charged with crimes that are, are just unimaginable. There's someone I'm thinking of right now and I don't want to mention his name because I go back to that's still a human being and a young person Is that who they're going to be in 10, 20, 30 years? And so we as a system, we can't be throwing people away at the outset. We don't know who they're going to be in 20, 30 years. And that what our our system really needs, especially the adult system, when juveniles are at risk, as well as adults being sentenced to harsh, lengthy, decades and decades long prison terms, what are we doing to people? We're basically saying you're not worthy to be in our community. Instead, we should be saying, okay, here's your sentence, but we're going to review you every 
five to 10 years, depending on the age of the person and the culpability related to the offense, the crime, you know, depending on the situation. That's what a real developmentally appropriate system could look like, is that you're actually looking at who is this person? Why is this person? And have they changed? And if they haven't changed, is the system helping them rehabilitate? Or is it just punishment and we're throwing you away and you're not fit to ever re-enter society? I don't believe that any human isn't capable of change. Um, and so I think a healthy system, when it diverts early on, it, it has restorative justice within it and throughout it so that people are learning and healing. Because one of the hardest things I've seen is that we're coming back on these juvenile life sentence cases and the victims are re-traumatized and they're still angry. And I just feel so sad for them, thinking, I wish your heart didn't hurt this much, you know, and that you're so angry and you're carrying that for this long. That, that hurts to me. And so I, I just think that there need to be intervals that are more developmentally appropriate for the person who is being put into the system at whatever level, youth or adult. Chasing after riches And then you gotta start Trying to be the difference Even in prison You're still a diamond in the rough If you digging for treasure Until you find it Don't give up I know it's tough So Andrew When Ashley was talking about Trauma in the system Like I really I know that I was traumatized as an adult in the system, and so I've never really thought about how it really would affect a child or a youth. And when she really was kind of honing in on that, it really made it seem so much more important for people to understand how traumatic the whole experience is. And I know that this becomes a really, it's a double-edged sword because of the simple fact harm is still created when, the, when a youth or a child or a juvenile commits crime. But I also know that if trauma was before harm was created, that is a, a good reason why the child or the youth has created harm. Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people do hurt people. Um, that's one of our many mantras that we have here at Within. Um, and it has taken me. Really, I, I don't know exactly how long, but it has taken me a very long time to actually understand that that I was traumatized as a child. Hmm. And it has also taken me an equally amount of time to heal from that trauma. And I and I hmm. think, well, I mean, some of it I'm not healed from completely yeah. and some of it I will never be healed from. And right. And I don't know. And and to be honest with you, it kind of feels and this is going to sound so strange, but it feels unfair for me to say that I was traumatized. It feels it feels like I'm cheating society by saying that I was traumatized. Yeah. But but I do know one thing that uh, one thing that shakes me right shakes me to my core is being strip searched. And I don't care how many times I've been stripped out and searched. I don't care how many years have passed. It it shakes my entire being and I'm not used to it. And I don't I don't believe I'll ever get used to it. And I remember the first time that I was strip searched as a child and I've never felt more more violated in in my entire life than when that occurred i've never felt more objectified dehumanized more more uh, disrespected than when that happened and i understand why the strip search is in place don't get me wrong i understand why it's there but 
this is something that happens consistently in the juvenile system that that these kids are getting stripped out on a regular basis and but but for a child to get stripped naked that that is a traumatizing event and this is 2022 and with the technology that is available i mean they have chairs right they have x-ray machines there there is technology that that can see if a person is holding something that they shouldn't be holding in today's world you know just in my opinion just utilize the technology there's no reason there's no reason to strip a child out and um yeah and and i don't i, I don't even know where to go um i i don't even know what to say I just, I mean, you don't need to say anything. I just think it's a, it's a real point that needs to be thought about moving forward. If we were to, you know, reform the system, especially starting with juvenile law, what, what, where would we start? Maybe it's something as, what seems simple enough as that is using the technology. Um, I think I go back to my school time and that's where my trauma started in a system, the school system. And I know that Ashley and you had talked about this briefly about how in school, when children are acting up, like I spent a lot of time in in-school suspension, in the basement, in my junior high, <laughs> all by myself in a little cubicle of a desk. And that was where I had to stay in school because I had started skipping school. And I, I know that I experienced that. And that to me was traumatic because you're pulled away from your classmates. You're told that you're being bad and so in order to be bad i was again pushed aside and put in the corner of the basement so to say and that's what sticks out in my mind is there wasn't let's let's figure out how we can help denise let's just we don't know how to help her and she's bad so we're going to remove her and i think that that's that's something that i wish like school officials and teachers i know some teachers do really care a lot but they're also their hands become tied because of policies in the way that we still continue to treat children when they're acting out which goes back to just trauma overall and i know dr hamilton talks about this we're all just kind of walking around in our own trauma because of our own stories of our lived experience and uh i just think about so many times that i was traumatized as a child from my lived experience and then knowing that it could have been different in school had people cared about me differently and there's another thing that doesn't make any sense because i'm a mother is the failure to support parents. I don't know every in and out of your childhood, but I know for me, my mom, she tried, she was a single parent. Um, and as I was acting out in school and missing days, and then she'd get phone calls at work that I didn't show up at school and because I was hanging out with the hoodlums or whatever, you know what I mean? And uh, nobody was supporting her. And then they threatened to file charges against her. And instead of, they were criminalizing my mother for my behavior. And then I can only imagine what it's like for children that have committed crime. And then they have to go give you A's because there was drugs involved. And they, and they have to go, go meet a parole officer or a probation officer. How are the parents supposed to continue to be, be able to do this for their child without hurting their child's sentence or their probation? Or There is no support for parents. I agree with you. I was that child. I definitely was a juvenile delinquent. And I can only imagine the amount of pain and the amount of stress that I caused my mother and my grandfather. And I remember going through the court system, going through all of those different group homes and institutions that I was placed in. I remember going through those 
And I remember that they removed whatever power that my mom may have thought she had, you know, because my mom really had none. She she had she had zero voice. And and I honestly think that none of the decisions that I made, I mean, I was going to do what I was going to do. Right. Regardless, if she said do it, don't do it. It didn't matter. I was I was going to make my own decision. So really, I don't see how she could have ever been held responsible for the actions that I took because I was a very conscious child. I knew what I was doing. I may I may not have known the impact or how far reaching the results of my actions would go. But I mean, but that's why you live life. Right. And that's to learn. And too much responsibility in my opinion, is put on the parents. Sometimes it's too much because kids just don't learn at home, right? They learn at school and they learn from their peers. And and at that age, I remember being more influenced by my peers than I was by my mother. And and that was just what it was. But but here's the hook, right? For all of the responsibilities that the youth take away from adults through their actions, the adults, they, the adults are ultimately responsible. We are responsible for creating and fostering an environment that is healthy for any child to grow up in mm. because it's not okay that we take these children and, and we treat them as if they're grown, right? We treat them as, as, as if they're responsible, even though they make all of their own decisions. I mean, we as adults, we we are the ones who know better and they really have no way of making a, a responsible decision. They don't. And you're right, Andrew. And I'm going to cut you off because I feel so pressured, so pulled to do this right now is because Ashley talked about it. The brain development of youth, it has been proven, is not done yet. So they can't we cannot make complex choices when we're young because they don't understand that that's a forever choice so i mean i still am so confused that we are still applying laws against science that don't align so and and what really gets me is in these courtrooms when these children are charged with these crimes right on the charging documents it says that that this child committed this crime knowingly knowingly and feloniously that they knowingly knew that the actions that they were taking were felonies. The reason this confuses me is because I have spoken with many, like many at risk kids over the years that were charged as adults. I have worked with them as as a mentor and about two months into working with them, I began to ask them if they knew the impact of what it is that they were doing and not one of them, not one single person told me yes they all said no no they didn't know how many people were impacted no they didn't know that they would be facing that many years of incarceration no they didn't know that they were committing acts of great harm they may have known what they were doing was generally against the law but they they certainly didn't know the impact and this is sad because really because it's on us the adults in our country to educate them on the impact of whatever it is that they're doing, not just to tell them about the law that's being broken, but we really have to educate them on the impact of the harm that they potentially could cause. 
take them out into the streets show them the destruction right show them show them what's going on and then show them a better way because if a responsible knowledgeable adult doesn't show them the proper way then what's going to happen is they're 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 going to latch on to and they're going to follow an adult that does not have their best interest at heart and and they're going to follow someone that will mislead them so then they start looking to these people that look like they have respect or they look like they know what they're talking about and and at the end of the day the child feels either valued or appreciated because they've given up on everybody else so it's almost like this dual giving up like the child gives up on the people they looked up to and then the the people that were supposed to protect the child are are failing in so many avenues because it should have been restorative justice practice that was followed through with with I guess that's kind of where I would go with this is that I feel like everything has become this criminal act for children becoming being children and I get that there is harm being created but if we did restorative justice practices then the child learns and then hopefully whoever was victimized by the child can also um, gain some healing in the process because we all know in the criminal legal system there isn't a whole lot of healing going on on both sides so i i just wish that things would turn into learning experiences for children and they should and i agree with you wholeheartedly and and to be fair there are laws written for restorative justice especially where it concerns children but it shouldn't be just the law it should be more than that it should be a way of life it should be it should be a way that we exist in the world where where we are responsible for one another we are responsible because when we don't take care of the children it becomes an unfair environment with unfair expectations for the kids in our society it, it, it becomes very very unfair it is but i hope that everybody will feel the same way i feel i feel honored that you introduce us to tenero banks in this interview that reveals to me how we can and we definitely need to become more aware of our shared responsibility to one another um you just said it it's all of our responsibilities i found that this interview was amazing i don't know why he touched me so like there is something about him in the thoughtful way he answered all of the questions and the willingness that he was to share himself it was just really it was so genuine and authentic i think that's those are the two words but i also i want everyone listening to tenero when you talk to him to had could he have chosen a different path it's kind of like when we uh travis had done his monologue insane planet different worlds was he wrong was travis wrong when when he was doing what he was doing in his lifestyle and then i say right now could he have chosen a different path so i just hope everyone listening can can ask themselves that question at the end of this we like to think so right and that's what we tell ourselves but then life kicks in and another reality takes effect and i have known mr tenero banks for some time now I met him when he was just a child in the streets. When he was 15, he was tried and convicted of murder, and he's been in prison for the past 18 years. He has literally came of age, came into his adulthood while being in prison. And I've had the privilege to watch him grow. And I have to say that I'm glad that he grew into the man that he is now. Let's hear from him. Maybach, be the one who beat the system or the one who came back. We live and learn.
Mr. Tenero Banks. So I know you well, known you for a while now. Um, but can you please give our listeners a little insight into who you are? Yeah, uh, Tenero Banks. I'm 33 years old, born and raised in Denver, Colorado. Partly, more raised in the penitentiary. At 15, I was charged and ultimately convicted of first degree murder and sentenced to life without parole. And here I am today. You've been in the pen ever since. Ever since. The whole time. The whole time. Locked up since you were 15. Yep. Damn. That's a long time. How'd you get there? Give me a little bit of the journey. How you caught a murder case at the age of 15. Oof, where do I begin? Man, that's the hardest part to explain. How do I get here? I'll try to think it out myself. I'm just saying, though, because you were 15 when you got locked up. You're 33 now. So you've been incarcerated longer than you were free. Right. Um, That's some heavy stuff. And not only is that heavy, but how do you cope with that? How do you handle that? For the most part, it just is. There's nothing. There's nothing you can really do to deal with it. You just have to deal with it. it just, you just have to be. You can't. I look at myself. I'm not the. I'm not my sentence or I'm not my situation. Regardless of how I'm in here, I still have. I'm still living. I'm still a part of the life form, as I like to put it. What's the life form? Like to explain what's life to me. Like there's so much of life. There's so many different forms of life, and. It's all connected in one way or another. So when I say life form, like the human form, like the body, I'm still a part of not per se society, but I'm still a part of society because I breathe. Every day I live, I do the same things everybody else does on the street. It's just I'm enclosed inside this prison. I, I can see that. You just said that you're not your crime. You're not your situation, right? You've been incarcerated all these years are... Are you would you consider yourself the same person you were when you when you got incarcerated? No. What makes you different? Now I know myself at the time I got incarcerated. I didn't know who I was or what I was. I was pre-programmed to to be something else on the streets. I never even asked myself who who am I or what am I? I just was what I was around. There was no trying to be something. It was just this is what you are. This is what we do. This is how you do it now. All these years later, now I can look back like I never got a chance to think. Now I'm actually now and I can think like, what do I want? What do I want to do? Or who am I myself? So you spoke about being pre-programmed. Um, what were you programmed to be? What were people telling you that you were? A rider. Where I'm from, that's where they say, oh, what's up, rider? You a rider? Like nobody ever says gang member. We wasn't I, as a kid. You never knew what a gang member is. This is just people in the hood. Just where we live, just another person, just, oh, that's a rider over there. Or either if you're selling drugs, oh, that's, that's a diva boy. You're a dope man. So they said that you're a rider, that you're a rider. Can you give more of an explanation as to what a rider is? To me, it's like a sort of a protector, really. One who protects a territory, basically, either by fighting, shooting, or whatever it may be. That's, that's the best way to explain it. How old were you when you were first told this? 10, 11, 11 years old. 11 years old. Yeah. So then from 11 to 15, you were being programmed. But but what is but what is this program, though? 
it's really like to explain it's just being like if you're if you're in the hood you're a part of the hood no matter how you look at it you're a part of the hood like as a little kid i can remember times when if i'm coming from school and i got my backpack on and i'm hanging out if the police come around somebody will come to you hey let me hey, hold this put something in your backpack you're a part of that even though you don't know why or what's going on you know all right i'm holding this this is what i'm supposed to do it moves on it progresses from there now once you realize okay boom i did that then they, all right you're looking little man we appreciate that you're a little rider that's just how it, it was presented to me like we we don't know what we don't know right like a fish doesn't know a fish doesn't know that it's in water so is that how it felt or were you aware of the things that were happening to you that that these things were possibly setting you up for harm like like how awake were you to what was happening i wasn't awake that's the problem it was to me i was completely asleep because you don't know that you're doing something wrong you it's it's normal because this is all you see this is there's nothing different can you explain because there are going to be a lot of people listening who don't understand uh where you're coming from or or think like that and they don't know what they don't know so can you describe a little bit about the circumstances? Well, let's see. From as far as I can remember, like I've always been around drug use. Mother, parent, all my parents, both parents, grandmother, everybody was was into drugs or alcohol one way or another. So never have I once at that point thought that it was wrong because this is what I seen. So it was just all oh, they're in there doing that. Whatever, whatever they may be doing, that's it's OK. That, that's what they're doing. So when you when you leave the house and you go somewhere else, you you're in the, on the streets or you go to a friend's house, you see the same thing. So it's it's natural for you to see a person using drugs or selling drugs. It never seemed wrong. Nobody told me it was wrong. Once you see what's happening, you see it, but you don't know what's going on. But once you're told what's going on, then you're like, okay, I know what that is. Then it's just normal. So you didn't have the contrast, and that's not the case for a lot of people. And it's easy for them to say, why didn't you choose different? But if you didn't believe there was a choice, then that changes the narrative. So so I ask if you believe if there was a choice. No. Why not? For there to be a choice, there has to be something else that you can do. There was nothing else to, to do. This is all there was. So then do you have an instance or a situation or a story that you can tell that can illustrate your lack of choice? One instance I kind of brought up already was like coming from school and then it's normal to see police chasing somebody in, in, in the neighborhood if you didn't see that then you were worried like what's going on so there was a time where someone was running and like he seen me and i had my backpack he's like hey grab hold this for me and put it in my backpack dope and gun all right there's no you never say no if, if you say no i've never even really heard no when somebody said do something you just do it like what's the understanding behind it it was this is just how it works when somebody above you basically tells you do this you just do it there was no there wasn't even no, no questioning or why am i doing this or how do i do it you just do it whatever they say do it, you just do it you don't do what you're told then you will get whooped once you say no then you're, you're looked at different you you don't even want i never even seen it but I, I would imagine you wouldn't even want him to be oh he he don't he didn't want to do it like you would feel pretty much as an outcast so you didn't want to be an outcast so when the things were placed into my backpack i felt now looking back at it like accepted like responsible like all right he gave me this i, I have to hold this for him and it's crazy because the person never came back I, I don't know if he got arrested or what the person never came back but how old were you when that happened that i was 11 yeah that's about the sixth grade so 
then after this situation, what what led you deeper? Right. Because I'm assuming that when these things were placed in your backpack, you felt trusted, you know, just off of what you said, you felt trusted and you felt you felt accepted, not necessarily by your peers, but by the culture in its totality, you know, that you were around. And I'm wondering because there's a there's a large difference between holding some drugs and a gun in a backpack and giving it to somebody to being direct filed as an adult four years later. Recognition. It was it was being recognized now that after that happened. Now I'm known. Uh, he's a little rider. He's he's one of us. He's with us. So now they recognize me as not just another little kid in the neighborhood, but that's our little kid in the neighborhood. So then it becomes you did that. OK, now now I'm looking. Now what's the next thing do I do? How do I help further whatever this is, whatever this bond that we're building? What's what do I do next? And eventually that just led to recognizing what a gang was being put on, initiated into the gang. And here I sit. So how old were you when you got initiated? Eleven. So it was soon after the backpack incident. Immediately, like once I accepted putting that in my backpack, I was already in the game. There was no question. There right. was no, oh, I don't, what do y'all do? Or I don't want to do it. There it was none of that. It was it wasn't even that I was asked to be a part of the game. It was just after that, I was recognized. And how did that recognition make you feel? If you had, you know, if you had one word to describe how it made you feel, what what would it be? Empowering. Because growing up, like in, in my situation, I didn't have the the typical like parents or bond with my parents. Parents on drugs. Dad was alcoholic. So I get sent to my grandma's house. It's 10 other kids in this house. So me being the only one from my mom and dad, I felt like not not neglected, but sort of, you know, I guess neglected is the word, like abandoned would be better, actually. So being in that situation and then when you have a group of people coming around to accepting you, like showing you love, that's that felt empowering to me. Did you ever think to yourself that that maybe these guys are showing me love, but this could be harmful. Did you ever think that far? Did you ever think that that this could be dangerous? You never think of danger. Like I don't I've I, I think it is all the time. I try to think about the past. Like when did I ever think like, man, this this may get me into trouble or this as long as you're around, you feel safe. As long as you are a part, you feel safe. When it's when you're not a part, it's when you're not not with the group that that you may feel danger. If if you're walking and you don't know these people, you're gonna look and you're gonna feel danger. But if you're walking and they, hey, what's up? They speak to you, you feel safe. It's safe being with them than not being with them. So I want to take a small detour right here, and I want to talk about the people that you were around, and and it speaks directly to the programming. And I want to talk about the people who are giving you these things and teaching you these things. Um, how did you see them? How did they appear to you? Right. Uh, were they were they like Batman or, or, or Superman to you? Were they the villain? Were they the superhero? Um, what were they exactly? I could say like older brothers, but like they, they were the superheroes because they were the ones that had money. They had they were able to, to feed us. If, 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 if you are hungry, you can go to them. Hey, man, I'm hungry. And they will give you the money or Anywhere you go, they will buy you something. It didn't matter. This this was the people you looked up to. These are the role models. These are the people that showed you how to how to be. Like I'm trying to think of the best way to explain it. Like yeah, them were the superheroes. Them were the people that I wanted to be. 
you know, I have this thing where I believe that there are times when people have to think for other people um, when the other person isn't necessarily thinking for themselves or or they're not thinking about their impact. And I think that's true regardless of the lifestyle that a person may live positive, uh, negative. If you're you're living a criminal lifestyle, uh, if you're in the business world or, or whatever, I think that there are people that always think for other people. And I think it is especially true when it comes to children. And, and we're talking about the youth and anyone that is older and has influence and contact with the child, you know, a parent, a sibling, a teacher, whoever. Um, so I say all of that to ask uh, first, do you agree with me with that statement? And then second, do you feel as if those who you unwittingly gave the admiration, that admiration and power to over your life? Did did they responsibly think for you? I do agree with you. To answer the question, the best way is when if you have a child and you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? The kid doesn't know. All the kid knows is whatever the kid was told. Like, how do you know what you want to be if you don't even have that information? So the the part about the power, like, man, that's hard to kind of answer. Because basically you're saying, like, did they did they know that they had this responsibility over me like with the power? I mean, yeah. When they were telling you to do stuff, did did they know? Of course they know. Yeah, for sure. Never once have anybody told me, yeah. you know, you can go to jail for what you're doing. Never. I've, it's, it's ironic that I, I've never heard that. Like people may tell you, yeah, I knew I was, what I was doing was bad. But no, I've never told what, what the way I grew up, the way we grew up. It's not that we knew what we was doing was bad. It was that we knew what we were doing was better than what we could have been doing. Like to sell drugs. If I'm selling drugs, I'm getting this money. Not just to put good clothes on, shoes, feed myself, but feed my household, paying the bills. If I wasn't, and I've been in this situation, we've been, I've been, come from school and all our stuff's outside the house sitting on the curve. We've been evicted multiple yeah. times. I've been through that. So i rather, in, in that moment, I'd rather be the one that was giving the dope. Hey, go go sell this. You want to make some money? Because I know I can go take this money. I can give it to my grandma. She can pay the bills. Right. We're going to have lights instead of not have the lights. So you were following the social norm. Exactly. So when did you become conscious of the fact that you were on the road to destruction? And it wasn't until after I was in prison to where I started to think about all that. Like never on the streets that I ever have a chance to even think that it was like you don't. There's no for me. There wasn't no break period. It's just this, you was here and it's what this is exactly what it was. And there's never a constant presence of someone asking you what you wanted to do with your life. No, nah, no, there was no <laughs> what you going to do next year or next week there. It was just right now. That's all we was focused on. So in that moment, with no one giving you sound advice, did you feel like you were being used or did you feel as if you were being responsible to your elders, you know, at that time? See, I, I, I don't I don't feel like I was being used, but I do. I do feel responsible. I, I felt like. I felt reliable, like I'm I'm a part of the machine. I'm a part of this is what's going on. I'm 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 serving a good part of that. So if you had a person that would have taken you and shown you something different, would you have done different? Most definitely. And that's that's the biggest that's the biggest part of it. If if there was somebody to, to take me to show me something different, then I would have did different. But all the, this is all I was shown. So here you are now. You're an adult. You're 33 years old. 
no longer a child. How do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile your past with your present? Mm, to your question, like it, I, I'm still, this is still a process of, of trying to understand and thinking about the past. Like really, I'm still trying to catch up. Like you said, oh, you're an adult now. I still feel 15 years old. I've been in, in prison 18 years. I, I don't feel, I, I'm still like, if I get sick, I get on the phone, I call my mom, mom, I got a headache. What do I need to do? Like, it's weird. Like, I, I don't know. I still feel like I'm still that 15 year old kid. It just, it makes me question like, what makes a person an adult? How do, does age defy that a person is an adult? Like, I don't, I don't know what to classify it. for me to say, okay, I'm an adult. I don't know what, how you can tell me that I'm an adult and how I'm not an adult. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's really a mind frame, like responsibility. Now I know responsibility. Like if you're an adult should be responsible. You accountable for what you're doing. And, but as a child, you're not responsible. You're not accountable. You're, you just are. And still to this day, I kind of just feel like I'm, I'm just him, but I'm, I'm becoming to understand myself and aware of what it means to be an adult. The 11 year old out there that might be listening right now. What is it that you would tell him or her? What would or even what would your 33 year old self tell your 11 year old self? Just think like I was never I didn't have the chance to think I didn't I didn't have opportunity to think other people thought for me. That's the best thing I could tell somebody is think if whatever you're doing, think about it. Is that really what you want to do? Because if it's not, then don't do it. Don't don't do nothing your heart ain't in, because if your heart ain't in it, then you won't do it for real. That's the best thing I can tell a person. Thing. Tenero, man, thank you for speaking with me. It's been a pleasure. And I just have one more question for you, bro. And that is, is there anything else you would like to add? That I'm not the mistakes I've made. Or I'm not my sentence. I'm not my crime. I just want the world to see me for who I am and give me the opportunity to show them who I am. That's, that's it. Sometimes you gotta go just to come back. You're the pain so I can gain what I earn from your truly to whom it make you serve. We live and learn that it's an old fact. Sometimes you gotta go just to come back. You're the pain so I can gain what I earn. So Andrew, yeah. what I thought was interesting is the programming. And I f this is something that stuck out to me because it's a belief I have. And I don't know if I'm one of those people that tries to find others that align with my beliefs. But he himself, Tanero said it, he, the programming that he received. And I was thinking, isn't that everywhere in life, though? It, it's in prison. It's in our office. It's the culture. Um, so, so, and I, I, cause I have this belief about programming in schools, you know, and we've talked about this, about the, the how textbooks in school or scholastic, you know, we were programmed with a certain amount of information. And so when he said that, I was like, oh my gosh, it's so true. It doesn't matter whether we're in the gang, whether we're in prison, we're in a, the office. It is, we are programmed to behave a certain way. And you had said it in the interview, the rules that we live by. It is the rules that we live by. And it's society, the culture, the environment. It, it depends on 
where you're at. It depends on who you're with. It depends on all of these factors, right? Because all of these factors is, is what tells a person whether or not their behavior is acceptable. And so we all go through a program. We're all trained and, and we're all taught because when we're born, we have no original thoughts. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if an, if an original thought exists, especially today in our world. We have we have no opinions. We have no biased thoughts, no preconceived prejudices, nothing. Right. We we are learning these things from the people that we trust, because all we have is the adult in front of us that tells us what to do and what to think. And at some point in time, this other person's thoughts, this adult's thoughts then becomes our identity. And then what happens? Right. What happens if if you've been misled? Who's responsible for these irresponsible thoughts and further? Who's responsible for the misguided actions of the child? the adults or the misguided youth and and then at what point at what point when is when is the child actually responsible and this is why the adult is so important because if an older person takes a younger person and leads them astray then he doesn't even know he doesn't even know what he's up to well he did but he only thought he was living by the rules of the land in which he was occupying yes indeed so I, I want to think that we're so quick to go, well, they have a choice. They could have done something different. But in Tanero's story, he says he was just operating in the within the culture of his community. Uh, it wasn't different. He didn't know any different. He didn't go to his friend's house and see they lived differently. No, they lived the exact same way. So until you're given a different vantage point, it looks like roses. You know what I mean? So at age 11... Does a child have the ability? Do you think they like physically have the ability to make life choices? Not at all. Not at all. No, I didn't know Tenero when he was 11. I met him when he was 13 and I recall making decisions that impacted him. I never told him directly to do anything ever. I never did that, but I was with people who did. And I remember talking to those people about stuff and And I remember him not having anything to say because really, really, what could he say? We didn't foster an environment where he where he could say, right, like, like, nah, I don't want to do that or or I don't want to go over there. We didn't foster that kind of environment. We cultivated an area. We cultivated an environment where it was, you know, you're going to do this and that's just what it is. Okay. So when you say you didn't foster it, like, were you guys strongholding him? Were you like, yes, yes, threatening him? Yes. Emotionally and mentally, that's exactly what it is. That is the perfect way to describe it. It, it is a mental and emotional stronghold. It is now, whether or not you're conscious when you're engaging in this behavior, that's a whole different story and question, but that's exactly what it is consciously or unconsciously when when you created this environment and expectations and you set the bar like this is what it is and you have to live up to this way of life or else. And and yes, the or else is a physical consequence. Yeah, mm. you're going to get beat up and, and you're going to be ostracized. So for one, you're you're emotionally preyed upon. You're physically preyed upon. I'm using the word preyed because you as 16 
were older and more mature than this 13 year old. And then you also are preyed upon uh, because you will be ostracized if you do not join in. And so. Well, I, I was like 20. Oh, you were 20. Yeah. When I first met him. Yeah, I was oh, like 20. Oh, so you. <laughs> and now you're only 27. <laughs> you know, I'm forever 27. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Denise. <laughs> I have a birthday tomorrow and I'm still 27. So we're talking about ages. What's the mat? What? what who? What science is behind the magical ages of when we are mature? You know, we've talked to like throughout these the Ashley Ratcliffe interview, a 10 year old loses his tooth. Tenero, 11 years old. You, 16, 20, like all these ages coming up. When I was bad, I was 13, 14. 13 years old was the first time that I started really doing really bad stuff. So what is the magical age for maturity? I believe it's 25, right? Who comes up with this? Science says 25. Correct. Now, which is why I say this. You have this 13-year-old that's listening to this 20-year-old. And although this 20-year-old has far more experience, he is still unconscious. He's still unaware. I got out of jail when I was 19. So when I was 20, I had experienced a whole different lifestyle. I had went through whatever it was that I had went through. And this is when I first met Tenero in this mindset. I had been through the prison politics and all of that. So so I had experienced a whole different set of rules, a whole different set of guidelines. And I also understood that one, I don't like jail. So, you know, let's leave that alone. Let's not go back there. So you just got smarter to be a criminal smarter. I won't say that I got smarter. Uh, because for me, getting smarter would mean not to break the law at all. But I'll say that I became more aware of my environment and what was at stake. Okay. I still did not know, even at the age of 20 or 21, I still didn't know the far reaching impact of what it was that I was doing. I still didn't know that because I would think like um, I could rob a bank. And the only one who was really going to get hurt is the insurance company. I'm not thinking of the people inside of the bank. I'm not thinking about their families that are going to suffer and, and who have to deal with that harm. I'm not thinking of the rules and regulations and the laws that would change because of my actions. No, nope. I'm not thinking about any of that. I'm not thinking about what's going to happen to me, you know. Right. Were you surviving, though? What? Were you surviving, though? In the act, are you surviving in that moment? It depends. It's a yes and a no. I'm surviving in the culture that that I've associated myself with and that I've chosen to align myself with. Yes. And I may even be thriving. However, in the greater society, I am not in the society where it matters. I am not in the greater society. I am no longer a 20 year old that survived a childhood full of um, full of idiotic leaders. I have gone from a survivor to a pariah. So it depends on the lens that one looks through. And again, it's about space, environment, culture and people. And, and let's be clear, the culture that we're talking about is not the norm. It is not the widely accepted way of life in America. And what it is is a subculture right but be that as it is be that as it may it's still powerful it's still impactful and it is i'm sorry andrew to cut you off because you said subculture but there's so many subcultures within our society as americans in this country right that i think that 
it 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 is our responsibility to understand those cultures to understand the subcultures and especially if they're causing harm in a community next door what are we going to do to help heal that to where the harm is no longer created I think that that's what, I guess that's what I would want us to have out of this conversation after you interviewed Tanero is because what I found interesting is that he was accountable in all of it. Even when he was a child, he didn't blame anyone. At least now as an adult, he doesn't. Um, but do you know why? No. He doesn't blame anyone because that's what, that's what he was conditioned to believe. And, and that of of all the crazy stuff that happens inside the gang life gang culture uh the drug trade and the gangland right out of all that crazy ideology and and the bizarre thoughts the one thing that i can agree with the thought is that you and you alone are responsible for your actions you mm. you must take responsibility for your actions that's the one thing that i've always said is the only good that a person can take out of that life is that you are responsible not anyone else don't blame anyone else yeah you need to take it and say hey that's me i did that and so i think that's why even to this day he won't blame anyone he he's gonna say you know like he's gonna say like i did this which i find it fascinates me for the simple fact of as the more that I've, I don't know the gang culture, but as we've gotten to know each other and through other interviews, the more I understand it now. Um, and I hope others listening also are like, wow, I'm fascinated because I see this strange parallel about the value systems um, that being responsible and he actively participated in it and he he felt reliable these words that he's using to explain his his actions you know and it's so it's still a culture based upon the values that we impress in the legal sphere of life in america you know the normal you said quote unquote normal and i think there's no difference in the motivation that's why I asked if you were surviving when you rob a bank. And I think that, and maybe I'm analyzing this way too much, but it's, there's these, it's nuanced, it's complex, it's paradoxical almost always. And when we start talking about values and, and, and cultures, and I mean, even when we talked about the hierarchy of crime in prison, we talk about these things and I keep seeing these weird paradoxes but also they align in so many strange ways and i can see how it becomes and this is where i'm going to be an advocate for policymakers because it's very hard to hold all of that hold harm and also hold healing i understand why this has become such a hard thing to figure out how do we hold people accountable if you believe that it's just not it's just not a cut and dry thing it's not but I, I, I just hope that other people start seeing that or hearing that because I keep hearing it in all of our interviews about this weird alignment of values. Yep. And man, 15 years old, when he has tried as an adult, he is now 33. And he says he is now figuring it out one step at a time. For Within Season 2, we have our resident poet, William S. Graham, from the Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center, back with us in the virtual room. In all of our interviews, Will sits, listens, and then crafts an individualized poem for each interview. Here's Will. This way. 
programmed by confusion, unaware of the broken attempts to live, headed for institutions, a student that gets what he gives, swimming towards recognition, hoping to be seen by the eyes of doubt, refusing to break out the same mold made in my house, forcing myself to be about more than what I thought or saw, living life raw, searching for guidance before owning up to my own flaws, breaking laws in the jaws of life. I learned the lessons of wrong and right by a particular set of rules, trying not to lose before I get abused. Used? Hmm, maybe. Who's to say? Before you judge me, just ask yourself, who would you be in life if you grew up this way, this way? For more content, music, poetry, and visual art, look deeper within at thisiswithin.com. Within is... Ashley Hamilton, executive producer. Andrew Draper, co-host. Denise Presson, co-host. Terry Mosley, producer. Angel Lopez, media production and creative support. William S. Graham, Denver Complex creative consultant. Sean Marshall, associate producer. Travis Barnes, creative music producer. Sarah Berry, associate producer. Matthew Labonte, segment co-host. Brett Phillips, segment co-host. Within is a collaboration between the University of Denver Prison Arts Initiative and the Colorado Department of Corrections. Thank you for listening and choosing to look within. And then you gotta start trying to be the difference Even in prison, you're still a diamond in the rough If you're digging for treasure until you find it, don't give up I know it's tough, had enough, didn't say that The truth's like finding a needle in a haystack Prepare for your future or continue a Maybach Be the one who beat the system or the one who came back We live and learn that it's a no fact Sometimes you gotta go ahead just to come back Enduring the pain so I can gain what I earn From yours truly to whom it may concern We live and learn that it's an old fact Sometimes you gotta go away just to come back Enduring the pain so I can gain what I earn From yours truly to whom it may concern Now as you contemplate what's in the papers Note the difference that separates givers and takers Lovers and haters living life's worthwhile This struggle is just a challenge of the season, this is the reason to smile 
So hear me now, different crowds are heaven sent While sitting dictating my letter to the president It's evident, we had choices and made decisions That landed us in prisons and feeling like apparitions Through the new conditions, but we can set a new intention To get out of these prisons and to really make a difference And I got to mention, you gotta keep your head up Hold on, stay strong, even when you fed up You may feel alone and all you got is your beliefs Sometimes you can't sleep thinking about being on the streets Keep looking for peace and praying till the pain stops While standing in the rain, crying with the raindrops We live and learn that it's an old fact Sometimes you gotta go away just to come back Enduring the pain so I can gain what I earn From yours truly to whom it may concern We live and learn that it's an old fact Sometimes you gotta go away just to come back Enduring the pain so I can gain what I earn From yours truly to whom it may concern Sure, you're making sense.